Hello all and welcome to another episode of The Coastal Current. I am your host, Yeva Jeska. On this podcast, we talk about research going on at the Virginia Coast Reserve, or VCR for short, and the challenges our coastal communities face, both locally on the eastern shore of Virginia and at a global scale. On this episode, we will be talking about coastal heat waves, what they are and how they affect ecosystems. Join us today to learn about how marine organisms can also overheat just like you. On this episode, we're interviewing Spencer Tassone, a graduate student pursuing his PhD at the University of Virginia. He got both his bachelor's and his master's degrees from Virginia Commonwealth University. Spencer is a Virginia native. He grew up in Virginia Beach. He enjoys surfboarding, snowboarding, skateboarding, really any type of boarding, it seems like. He also likes live music and comedy. He's a big fan of hot sauce, specifically the flavorful type, not the burn your face off type, his words. Listen up because you're going to learn about coastal heat waves, ecosystem resilience, and how marine organisms can get stressed out by the conditions in the water they inhabit. Hey Spencer, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're excited to talk about heat waves. Um, so my first question is, why are you interested in studying coastal ecosystems? Uh, I, so I, I grew up um, like on the coast in Virginia Beach. And so I've always sort of been around the water, been like on the water. And I, I always knew I wanted to like sort of work on the water. And once I started going to school and thinking about what I might study, studying coastal ecosystems just sort of seemed like a natural fit. Mm -hmm. What are some of the biggest stressors that these environments have to deal with? Uh, Well, on the aquatic side of coastal ecosystems, they can can be stressed by many things um, such as like low oxygen, which uh, are sometimes referred to as dead zones. they have low pH vents, which you know is also uh, something that's called ocean acidification. Uh, and there's also heat stress, which are sometimes referred to as heat waves. And uh, all of these different events that I just listed are extremes sort of in these normal conditions. And extremes in these variables, such as low oxygen, low pH, or, or high water temperature can be stressful on organisms like uh, crabs or clams or fish that inhabit these coastal environments because these stressful conditions often persist for several days to, to several months. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned low pH. Could you kind of talk a bit more about that? Does that mean that the water is more acidic? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of kind of weird to think about. Yeah, so low pH means more acidic. Yeah, so the water is getting more acidic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm familiar with, you talked about heat waves as kind of a stressor, and I'm familiar with heat waves that people experience, you know, like in, in the middle of summer, sometimes there's an especially long week of hot temperatures, um, especially, you know, recently happening more and more. Um, so what are heat waves like in coastal environments? Is it kind of similar for, for these organisms where it's also like a long period of heat? Yeah, yeah. So aquatic heat waves are very similar to what people experience on land. There are these extended periods of extreme high temperature. Um, 
but it's worth noting that it takes a lot more time and energy to heat up water relative to the atmosphere. So aquatic heat waves tend to stick around longer uh, than heat waves you might you know, experience on land that might only last you know, a day or two. Um, and I also wanted to note that heat waves, they can occur year round. They're not just limited to like summer months. Oh, really? So it's not necessarily, so it can happen in the winter, you mean? Yeah, yeah. So it can happen in the winter. And I mean, you might think, why is that important? But, uh, you know, in the wintertime, there's not any organisms doing photosynthesis. Uh, but a lot of the organisms that sort of break down um, compounds that produce things like CO2, mm -hmm. they are a lot more temperature dependent. So they're not they're not reliant on, on light energy. They just sort of dependent on temperature. So you can have these conditions where uh, the, there's not enough light for photosynthesis to occur, but it's warm enough for um, respiration to occur. That's just the term used for the breakdown of uh, organic compounds. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, you can have these heat wave events that happen outside of like the traditional, like, hot time of the year um, that also have these implications, these broader scale implications. Right, so just because like, um, like a summer heat wave might be, you know, really high temperatures, but that doesn't mean that a winter heat wave is the same temperatures, right? So it's not necessarily the same level of hot, but it's the same kind of level of hot compared to what you would expect. Is that right? Right, yeah, it's, it's all relative to like a, a reference period. And generally these, these heat waves are thought of on like a, a 30 year time span. So, um, so yeah, you can have these heat waves like in the winter time or, you know, even in the spring and the fall. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's just uh, exceptionally high temperatures relative to like a 30 year time period. Right, okay. Um, so I think, and you mentioned, you know, over a long time period, I think on land heat waves have been becoming more common, right? Over the last few decades. Um, you know, you see it in the news, you see how it's affecting people in cities and uh, stuff like that. So is that true of coastal heat waves as well? Oh yeah, so, so similar to atmospheric heat waves, these aquatic heat waves and coastal environments have, you know, they've become more frequent, but they're also increasing in duration. So like the amount of time that a heat wave event is occurring. Uh, they're also increasing in spatial extent, so they're covering more area, and they're also becoming more intense. So they're they're going away from that sort of 30-year reference. They're going further away from that 30-year reference. Mm -hmm. So how are marine organisms impacted by these heat waves and the other environmental stressors you mentioned? Um, well, well, all, all organisms have a, a range of environmental conditions that they can survive and thrive in. Um, but these extreme, but like extremes in these other environmental conditions like heat waves or like I was mentioning before, there's low oxygen and low pH events. They, they represent times when environmental conditions are uh, maybe at or exceeding what an organism can tolerate. And some, some more specific studies have shown that extreme temperature can cause Things like uh, barriers to migration for certain fish uh, can cause species invasions, increased parasitic infections, increased greenhouse gas production, and several other sort of impacts that we 
don't generally consider to be good. Mm -hmm. um, and I should also say that uh, many of these processes that control water quality, such as oxygen concentration or pH, uh, a lot of the things that control those are temperature dependent, uh, which just means that uh, when temperature increases, so do the processes that influence uh, these other variables. Um, and some of, some of my research has examined how uh, aquatic heat waves uh, co-occur with extremes in things like uh, low oxygen or low pH. So what happens if you have like this co-occurrence? What, what happens to the organisms if they're experiencing multiple stressors at the same time? So, uh, I mean, you, well, first you want to just take into account that, you know, one stressor is already hard enough. So when you have multiple stressors, you know, all co-occurring, um, then these represent times when sort of large and enduring changes can, can really occur, such as things like a species invasion or, um, or others. There's uh, been some studies that have shown that there's uh, increased fish and bivalve mortality during co-occurring low oxygen and low pH events than if there was just a low oxygen or just a low pH event. Um, these these co-occurring stressful events may leave uh, they, they they have the potential to leave coastal fisheries more vulnerable to population reduction than if we just considered one uh, extreme at a time like we've been doing in, in the past. Mm -hmm. So it's important to kind of know when these variables these stressors are co-occurring to you know understand how it's impacting fish stocks that could be important for people, people's food and the local economy and things like that, right? Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I wanted to ask specifically about the Eastern Shore. Um, are heat waves and other stressors common on the Eastern Shore as far as you know? Uh, yeah, as far as I know, um, aquatic heat waves are, are relatively common along the Eastern Shore. And this is uh, driven in part by uh, the atmosphere and also the coastal ocean, both heating up. Mm -hmm. So if the coastal ecosystems are affected here, how could that impact, you know, fisheries and other important parts of the eastern shore economy, especially since the eastern shore is so kind of reliant on, you know, shellfish and like you said, these uh, fish populations? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, like you said, the economy of the eastern shore is, you know, partially dependent on fishing and, and aquaculture. Uh, so as heat waves and these other stressors become more common uh, and, and also more intense, um, it will likely lead to lower like fish landings, uh, lower quality fish that, they, that do get landed, and more mortality or increased mortality within aquaculture operations. And a lot of people come to the eastern shore to go fishing, so that, that could impact, you know, like the, the amount of tourists that come out to, to visit and to be out on the water. Um, so yeah, those are just a few ways that could impact Eastern shore economy. Yeah, I know when I'm out there doing research, I always love to go grab some fresh seafood. So I can imagine that, you know, having all these stressors could really, really impact the local economy, especially for like tourism and, and you know, just sources of food for people as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, especially these co-occurring events. They're um, they don't 
co-occur. It's not like a hundred percent of all heat waves co-occur with like a low oxygen or a low pH event, but you know, uh, there there are um, a certain number that do. Mm -hmm. um, so shifting gears a bit, um, something that ties into your work on heat waves um, and these different stressors is the idea of resilience. Um, can you talk more about what resilience is and why it is important in these coastal ecosystems? Yeah, so the term resilience requires some unpacking. Uh, it's, it requires some unpacking because it, it includes both resistance to a disturbance and recovery from a disturbance. And what I mean by a disturbance is that um, it's oft, disturbances are often thought of as like a temporary change in some environmental condition that uh, causes a pronounced change within the system. Um, and so when we talk about coastal environments, we often give the example of like a hurricane as a, as a disturbance event, um, but extremes in water quality variables like heat waves or low oxygen or low pH events are, these are all different types of a disturbance. Um, so resilience in an ecological context refers to a system's ability to resist and recover from a disturbance event, be it a hurricane, a heat wave, you know, low oxygen or low pH. Um, and we care about resilience in coastal ecosystems um, for many reasons, most notably are the ecosystem services that these coastal areas provide. And uh, an ecosystem service is just something that the environment does for free that we as humans benefit from and don't really have to pay for. So for example, we want resilient marshes because they, they help with coastal protection from uh, storm events. You know, we also want resilient seagrass meadows because they're important nursery grounds for uh, commercially important organisms like fish and shellfish. Uh, and specifically seagrasses also help to effectively uh, trap and store carbon, which helps mitigate uh, climate change. Mm -hmm. So your work specifically kind of focuses on seagrass resilience, correct? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's interest in seagrass resilience uh, at the VCR because the VCR is home to the largest and most successful seagrass restoration effort to date. Mm -hmm. So, and you kind of mentioned some of the important reasons to study seagrass resilience, like um, carbon and and how it's an important um, nursery ground for for important uh, for economically important fish. Um, so, is that kind of the main reason to care about seagrass resilience um, in terms of like the local community and the ecosystem? Yeah, yeah. So, the ecosystem services that seagrass meadows in particular provide. Um, make them very valuable areas. So, so that's why, you know, we want to know how resistant they are to disturbances and, uh, you know, if they are disturbed, how long do they take to recover and what methods of recovery uh, do they utilize? Um, mm -hmm. And, and on, on the Eastern shore in particular, the seagrass meadows uh, are no stranger to disturbance events. They, they once covered vast areas, but were knocked uh, knocked back by the outbreak of a disease and a series of tropical storms back in the 1930s. Um, but more recently, there was a heat wave in 2015 that caused a 90% reduction in seagrass density. And so my work is trying to um, 
trying to answer the question, how long does it take for the seagrass to recover from a disturbance? And what methods do the seagrass use to recover? And, and what I mean by methods is, uh, you know, are they recovering from uh, like seed dispersal or through like lateral extension, like uh, clonal growth? So what do you, clonal growth, what, what does that mean? Um, just kind of, can you describe sort of how seagrass grows and kind of put that into context for us? Yeah, so, so seagrass can uh, grow two different ways. They can produce seeds like, you know, most plants do. And uh, they when they release their seeds, the tides disperse those seeds. Or if they're not producing seeds, they can extend their, their roots out. They're not technically roots, but they're, they're root-like structures, they can extend those out sort of um, around them in different directions. So that's two different methods that seagrass can use to, to occupy, to grow, and to occupy an area. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how are you studying seagrass resilience? What, what methods do you use? So we're studying seagrass resilience at the VCR in an area behind Wreck Island called South Bay. And we set up uh, an experiment last summer, last June, I believe, yeah, where we simulated a heat wave event by removing 90% of the seagrass cover from small areas within the central part of the seagrass meadow and along the, the northern edge of the meadow. And we chose those locations because uh, earlier work by, by Amelie Berger and Peter Berg uh, showed different temperature conditions between the, the interior of the seagrass meadow and the northern edge of the meadow, which is uh, closer to an inlet, to an to a oceanic inlet. And we expect to see faster recovery at the northern edge due to lower temperature stress relative to the meadow interior. Uh, and I, I've been and will continue visiting these, these plots monthly to count seagrass density in a way that should let me infer the method of recovery. Mm -hmm. So whether they're dispersing through seeds or growing in from the side and, and putting up new shoots, right? Right, yeah, exactly. So we, we, if we see regrowth occurring sort of randomly within the plots, that would uh, make us think that, okay, this is likely... Uh, uh, um, seed, uh, likely recovery via seeds, or if we see it just sort of creep in from the edge of the plots, that would make us think, okay, this is probably that clonal growth that we're seeing. That's the method of recovery. Right. Um, and I know this is kind of a, a recently started project, but um, are there any results that you've seen so far? Uh, right. So we, we set this experiment up uh, last June, and we haven't seen any recovery yet, but we anticipate it'll only take a couple years. Uh, and we think this because um, there's some routine monitoring that the VCR does on seagrass in that in the South Bay area. And so following that 2015 heat wave, uh, they've gone back every year and measured seagrass uh, density. And that makes us think that it'll, it'll only take a couple, two or three years for these uh, plots that we remove seagrass from to get recolonized. Mm -hmm. And to wrap up, what do you want people to take away from this interview when thinking about resilience and the different stressors that these coastal ecosystems encounter? 
Yeah, so our coastal ecosystems, they, they provide us with many services that we don't necessarily think about all the time, um, but we need to better understand how resilient these ecosystems are. If we're going to count on them to, to still provide those services in a future that is predicted to have an increase in disturbance frequency, duration, intensity, and spatial extent. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for teaching us about heat waves and about um, resilience in coastal ecosystems. Uh, to wrap up, we're actually going to do some fun questions to end our episode on an energetic note and also to get to know Spencer a bit better. Um, so I'm going to ask you some, some quick questions, Spencer, and you can, you know, go into as much detail as you'd like or keep it short. Um, but what is your go-to snack when you're out in the field? Ooh. Uh, all right. So when you're out in the field, uh, you can bring a cooler, I guess, if you wanted to keep things cool. There's not really a way to heat things up. Um, but generally, like, I personally bring dried fruits. So like dried bananas or dried mangoes or something that doesn't really require uh, refrigeration. Um, so those, those are generally my go-tos when I'm out in the field, that or um, sometimes like a peanut butter sandwich or something. Yeah, I think when I was talking to Sarah and Elliot before, they were big fans of peanut butter and granola bars. So dried fruit is pretty pretty healthy option for, <laughs> for a yeah. field snack. Yeah, pretty tasty too. Um, and what is your favorite and least favorite part about field work at the VCR? Ooh, um, well, I guess I'll start with least favorite. Um, so I live in Charlottesville and the VCR is on the Eastern shore. So anytime you want to go out there, it's a, a four hour drive, you know, one way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also getting out to this, these study sites is sometimes of a challenge given, you know, different like wind conditions. If, if the wind really starts whipping, it can make the water real choppy and make it difficult to get work done. Um, but when it's not, when, when the what when the wind is real low, it's really beautiful out there. And, and I work primarily at low tide. So sometimes you get, um, you know, these, these ducks or different shorebirds that will will land in the water and just sort of hang out near you while you're doing your work. It's pretty cool. And I guess going off of that a bit, uh, do you have a favorite marine or coastal organism? Ooh. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite in particular. I have, you know, we got to see uh, some sea turtles out there. That was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, I guess I'd have to go with that one. The sea turtles are pretty, um, pretty charismatic. Yeah, I think my first day out in the field when I was at the VCR uh, two summers ago, I saw I saw a turtle, and it was it was gorgeous. It was huge too. It was it was a really old turtle. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was the one that uh, well, a couple that we've seen out there have been pretty huge. We also see a lot of skates out there too. Those ones are a little bit more. Um, you got to make sure you don't step on them, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want to get, you know, uh, stung by their, uh, what are they called? Stingers, I guess? Yeah, well, their, their tails. They, uh, they, uh, we, when we go out there, we do this thing called the stingray shuffle, where you just kind of, you don't really pick up your feet when you're walking around. You just kind of push them forward. 
<laughs> just to yeah, uh, try to try to avoid uh, coming down on one of those things. Yeah. Um, so my next question is: When you're not working on research, what things do you like to do? A uh, big fan of camping. Um, also, find me at this local Charlottesville skate park pretty often. Um, but those two things generally occupy my time. Also, I've been working on my house a lot too, so that's uh, that occupies a lot of time too, and I, I enjoy doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and my last question is, if you had to choose one book to bring with you to a desert island, what book would you bring? Oh, interesting. Um, a couple of them come to mind. Uh, Portrait of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde is a pretty good one, pretty entertaining. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter Thompson. That one's also pretty entertaining. Um, I think those two would probably be my go-tos if I had uh, if I had to read them, if those are the last, thing I, last things I had to read forever. Yeah, I think, well, I always think it's funny when I ask this kind of question and someone's like, well, of course, uh, you know, how do you survive in the wild book or handbook or something like that? <laughs> so I'm yeah. glad you didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, a manual for, you know, what is edible and what isn't. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, so that was my last question. Um, thank you so much, Spencer, for being on our podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you about coastal resilience and heat waves. So thanks a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. I am so glad we got to talk to Spencer today about heat waves, seagrass, and resilience. If you want to learn more about his work, check out his website at spencertassone.com. There you can find out more about coastal Virginia research that he has worked on and keep up with the results of his seagrass resilience study. And remember to visit the VCR LTR's website at vcrltr.virginia.edu to learn more about all the different research happening on Virginia's eastern shore. Thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>